0: Hello everyone, and welcome to this new session of Mem Podcasts. I have Dr. Nicholas Wong with me today. He's one of our infectious diseases consultants here in East Midlands, and we're going to speak about fever in the returning traveller. Hello, Nick. Hi there. My name is Nick Wong, and I'm an infectious diseases consultant at the Leicester Royal Infirmary. I'm just going to be doing a quick run-through of an approach to fever in the returning traveller today. So we'll have a chat about common scenarios, places to pay specific attention to, and a bit about the common conditions and management when you see someone like this in the middle of the night. Clinical presentations can vary. We usually think along the lines of fever along with other associated symptoms such as GI upset, rigors, headaches. Trying to localize it to an organ system or a specific presentation. So Travelers' diarrhoea is by far the most common thing we deal with, but usually is fairly self-limiting. The big three serious infectious diseases that we see in people returning from abroad are malaria, dengue, and enteric fever. When you take the history, it's worth bearing in mind the incubation period, so knowing exactly where the patient has been, what they were doing, and when they got back. So, if a patient has been to India, for example, India is a pretty big place, to use that as an example. Where exactly in India did they visit? Because some areas do carry malaria, while others are pretty safe in that regard. Were they eating anything unusual? Or were they sticking to bottled water and freshly cooked food? Animal contact, other ill individuals, and hospital stays. All of these things are relevant when it comes into factoring in your decision-making in trying to narrow down a differential diagnosis. In addition to these standard questions, it's well worth asking whether they were bitten by insects and whether they took any specific measures against catching infectious diseases, be it vaccination, malaria, chemoprophylaxis, etc. I wanted to draw some particular attention to malaria because this is common, up to 2,000 cases in the UK every year, is easily overlooked and, crucially, is potentially lethal while being completely treatable. So if you don't take anything else away from today's talk, Please keep malaria in the back of your mind if you're dealing with anyone who's come back from abroad with a fever. By far the most dangerous strain of malaria, falciparum malaria, is largely localised to sub-Saharan Africa, although rarely can be seen in Southeast Asia as well. It is notorious for causing serious complications such as multi-organ involvement, cerebral malaria, and is responsible for up to half a million deaths per year. The hallmark clinical features of severe malaria, starting with symptoms, include an ongoing fever, headache, rigors, sweats, as well as generalised exhaustion and fatigue. Examination findings tend to be fairly nonspecific, aside from occasional jaundice. The splenomegaly sometimes detailed in textbooks is rarely large enough to be palpated. Investigation-wise, pay specific attention to evidence of organ failure, i.e the renal function, assess for respiratory failure, and coagulopathy. Blood cultures should be done, as the infection can be complicated by a gram-negative sepsis, which we refer to as algid malaria, and other worthwhile features to be mindful of are high parasitemia levels, particularly above 2% of red blood cells colonized, as well as CNS involvement, hypoglycemia, and pregnancy. Any of these features of severity, i.e. organ involvement, high parasite levels of pregnancy, should warrant immediate discussion with the local infectious diseases services and commencement of IV anti-malarial therapy, usually artesinate or quinine plus doxycycline if this is unavailable. Malaria films, which are commonly used to make the diagnosis, alongside rapid diagnostic kits, should re- be repeated daily until there's conclusive evidence that the parasitemia has cleared. Be mindful of seizures, hypoglycemia, and arrhythmias, particularly when giving intravenous quinine, as this may be be the only option available to you if working in a DGH or in an area without ready access to top-line antimalarials. From an intensive care perspective, patients may be admitted to ICU for organ support generally because of hypoxia. From ARDS and tr- triggered by the malaria parasite or for GCS monitoring if they have severe cerebral malaria. Left untreated, falciparum malaria tends to cause quite severe cerebral edema and this tends to be the main cause of death. However, conventional treatments such as mannitol and steroids are not of any proven benefit and are likely to cause further harm. In terms of avoidance, once the patient has been commenced on the appropriate therapy, you would expect a rapid clinical improvement and then they can be stepped down to oral combination artemisinin therapy to finish up their full course. It's paramount to remind patients of the importance of malaria prophylaxis in the future if they ever get admitted with it as people returning to malaria endemic areas often negate this and then suffer the consequences accordingly. Moving on from malaria now, the next most common imported infection that we see that's significant enough to land people in hospital is enteric fever. This is split up into typhoid and paratyphoid fever and generally needs a microbiological culture to distinguish the two as the clinical features are largely identical. This is spread through faecal oral transmission and generally is associated with contaminated food. Patients present with fever, rigors and varying degrees of abdominal symptoms such as abdominal pain and variable constipation or diarrhea. Specific examination findings may be noted in particular rose spots which are lightly colored pink patches on the abdomen. These are meant to be pathognomic of enteric fever but are very difficult to spot even in light-skinned individuals. Enteric fever is best diagnosed with blood cultures and these provide up to a 90% yield, which is essential for ascertaining antibiotic sensitivity information as drug resistance rates vary around the world. Stool cultures and urine cultures should also be sent as well as this has important public health implications, particularly if the patient works in the healthcare sector or in food preparation. Bear in mind that many tropical illnesses are notifiable diseases and should be reported to the relevant authorities. Empiric treatment for enteric fever generally involves a third generation cephalosporin such as keptriaxone or a carbapenem such as meropenem if there are concerns about drug resistance. Once antibiotic sensitivity information is available, the patient can usually be stepped down to azithromycin or ciprofloxacin depending on sensitivities, but clinically even with the right therapy the fever can take several days to settle down and this is not uncommon. The main complication to be mindful of is organ perforation as a consequence of untreated enteric fever. A vaccine does exist for typhoid fever, but is not particularly effective and does not protect at all against paratyphoid fever. The best ways of prevention are good sanitation and meticulous attention to hand hygiene. (coughs) Humans are the only reservoir for enteric fever, and so animals are unlikely to come into play in the history. The final common illness we often see in returning travelers with a fever is dengue fever. So this can be seen in Southeast Asia region, particularly Singapore, Sub-Saharan Africa, and South America. This is transmitted through bites from infected mosquitoes. And while highly unpleasant, the first time patients catch it is unlikely to cause anything life-threatening. The key features are a fever, headache, joint discomfort, and a widespread maculopapular rash. A variety of arboviruses, including dengue, can cause these features. So clinically, it can be hard to distinguish from other things, such as chikungunya fever. Diagnosis-wise, the preferred test is serological and PCR testing, as applies to most viruses in the modern era. And in terms of what you are likely to see on other routine investigations, patients are often lymphopenic with a marked thrombocytopenia as well. Severe cases may show evidence of deranged LFTs and renal function and blood cultures should be done but will obviously be negative in the context of dengue. There is no specific treatment available for dengue fever. Management is purely supportive with analgesia and fluids as required. Most anti-inflammatory drugs should be avoided in view of the bleeding risk. The most essential bit of patient counselling when managing dengue is to warn the patient not to enter any dengue endemic areas again for the next two years. This is important because patients who experience dengue a second time round are far more likely to develop severe complications such as dengue hemorrhagic fever and dengue shock syndrome. Therefore, this advice is worth reiterating to patients coming in with dengue fever. So that wraps up the big three in terms of common stuff we've seen on the infectious diseases unit locally. Over the years we have seen a variety of more unusual things, such as the old patient coming in with chikungunya fever, which is quite similar to dengue, but has more pronounced arthralgia, as well as the occasional rickettsial type illness as well. So this can include things like tick typhus or scrub type, from the Mediterranean, and African tick bite fever. I suppose I can leave you with the, the final thing to be aware of in the context of febrile returning travellers. If someone comes back with major bleeding symptoms, having been to sub-Saharan Africa, certain things such as viral hemorrhagic fever, i.e. Ebola, Marburg, Crimean-Congo hemorrhagic fevers, should all enter your differential diagnosis. And if you suspect someone's been to, for example, the depths uh, of sub-Saharan Africa and has come back with heavy bleeding symptoms, that means Urgent ID expertise should be sought as soon as possible with strictest possible isolation measures, pending their advice. There's an endless list of potential things people can acquire from travelling overseas, ranging from the mundane, such as the common cold to flu to the much more exotic. But if you're stuck, don't be afraid to call the local ID services for a second opinion. And above all, please keep malaria in the back of your mind if someone's been overseas and has come back with a fever. Thank you so much, Nick, for the talk.